Welcome to episode four, four oh. of Diva Discourse. So today we're going to be discussing and really eat up the sample because it's delicious. No angel. Get your fork and your knife <laughs> if you've got one. This is a special day because, or a special month, because we are celebrating the 10th anniversary of Beyonce's self-titled album, Beyonce. It was released on December 13th, 2013. And for anyone who is significantly younger than us or removed from the world of pop culture, we have to just pause for a moment and talk about how significant of an album this was how significant of a release this was, and what this did for Beyonce's career and her position in the pop landscape. Beyonce was a huge deal by 2013. She already was a legacy artist in some ways. She had years of huge success as Destiny's Child, and we're talking, you know, singles that were number one for 11 weeks, and then emerged as a solo artist and was a dominant force to be reckoned with. So... By the year 2013, people were already very interested in when her new album was going to come out. And there was a lot of whisperings. There was a lot of speculation. Her fans were waiting eagerly. And when this did drop at midnight on December 13th, while she was in the middle of a world tour, she herself said that she had no idea how this stunt was going to play out. The industry at this time was shaped by very meticulous, intentional rollouts of albums that were shaped by record labels who would release a single, release a second single, market the album, have months of anticipation and announcements, then announce the album, drop it, follow it up with the world tour. Beyonce did none of that. And in an interview, she revealed that she... You know, I just got off the stage. I was, it was 11.30 once I took off and I had a glass of wine. <laughs> And my cousin Angie was like, girl, you all right? (laughs) Because I was talking to myself. (laughs) Because I was terrified. I was so scared. And I already envisioned, like, the worst things that that could happen. Um, I'm like, people are going to hate it. Why didn't I say anything? But no, I mean, it's just things that we all go through when we, it's just human. And, um... I was too, I was just really nervous because this was a huge risk. And um, when I landed, I, I saw it actually live on iTunes and you know, you're just waiting for the first comment. <laughs> and you know, the next morning, I just was. <laughs> Jody Rosen, who is one of my favorite music critics, at least in the contemporary sense, wrote in his review of this album, the National Security Agency couldn't stop its secrets from spilling all over the place. Beyonce kept the lid on a project which, conservatively, involved hundreds of individuals, studio musicians, cameramen, key grips, personal assistants, even record executives. As a rule, the least trustworthy people on the planet. 
The arrival of all that music, all at once and out of the blue, was an unprecedented shock and awe move which rocked the record industry back on its heels and convulsed the internet. That's a Jody Rosen quote. And something I want to add is that the effect in some ways I think is best encapsulated by this weird kind of nerdy fact, which is that Beyonce released this surprise album on Friday the 13th. Before that, the traditional start of chart calculation weeks was Tuesday. People would release their albums on a Tuesday and what it was sold in the following seven days would then go towards its chart success and where it ranked. By dropping her album on a Friday and breaking iTunes records and going straight to number one, Beyonce actually caused the record industry to stop, recalibrate, and change the day their cycles begin to Friday, which happened in 2015. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No Angel is the fifth track on the album. It was written by Beyonce, Caroline Polachek, and James Fauntleroy, and produced by those three artists, as well as Patrick Wimberly, who's also of the band Chairlift with Caroline Polachek, and the producer Boots. But I think we are going to want to talk about Caroline Polachek's influence here because she, this was the only song she did on the album and she left quite a unique imprint on this song. Definitely. Caroline Polachek spoke to Rolling Stone. What she said is that her chairlift bandmate, Patrick Wimberly, had been working with Solange and he met Beyonce through Solange at an event and she said, you know, I'd love to work with chairlift. And so Patrick and Caroline ended up spending about a week in a studio in New York City working on tracks to show Beyonce. And at the very last minute, she decided to throw in one she'd written on her laptop while they were touring in the UK, and that happened to be No Angel. She said she thought it would be incredibly sexy if Beyonce did it. Ten years later, in 2023, Caroline Polachek spoke with Harper's Bazaar, and she recounted once again what led to the making of No Angel. What she said was, and I'm quoting her here, Beyonce was very secretive throughout the process of making that record, which she is now kind of famously known for. And it was funny to me to, to read that because at the time she would have had no idea that this would have been an industry-changing surprise tactic. What Caroline said in that interview is that she had filled the studio in Manhattan with different writers. Everyone was working in a different room. It, it was almost like a writing camp. And I'm going to quote her again. She said there was a purple satin-lined crib in the reception area for Blue Ivy. And Beyonce would pull up at like 3 a.m. and work until like 7 a.m. and then leave. So Caroline worked on this arrangement of No Angel, sent it to Beyonce, and she said that she included this whole minute and a half long instrumental section in the middle of the song. She thought there was no way it was going to stay. And they ended up keeping it. When she was asked to approve the song, she came in and she heard a version of it that was different than the version we know. What Beyonce did on the demo was sing the entire thing in this upper register. And Caroline said, you know what, this sounds great, but I have a note. And Beyonce's A&R manager said, Beyonce doesn't take notes. And Caroline said, well, let me just give you this one note, which is that it would be really cool if she starts high and then drops low for the chorus. 
and then sings the next verse low and then jumps up. And so at the end of this interview, she says, I'm going to quote her one, one more time. I was sure they weren't even going to use the song. And then a couple months later, a friend texted me and was like, it's out. And I was like, what's out? And they were like, your song. She did the octave jump. It was incredible. And she sounds fucking amazing on it. This song is, first of all, so sexy. I think it's one of her most understated sex songs. A quick note on how the title of the song is stylized. It's stylized as just the word angel with a strike through. It makes the signifier of angel feel like a disqualification. It's almost like they're fallen angels. But you know, as with fallen angels, their transgression is what makes them more seductive. And I feel like this song sounds transgressive and seductive. There's something kind of really, really grimy and literally about the production. It almost sounds like they're fucking in a cheap motel. Sometimes when I listen to it, I imagine that it's a secret installment in the Bonnie and Clyde continuum. You know, there's something to say about the fact that Beyonce was introduced to the musicians that are part of Chairlift through Solange, because you do hear a lot of the kind of production that influences Solange in this song. It's done, right? And it's done in a different way. Solange is a lot more freeform. Uh, you could even argue, say that she's a lot jazzier, whereas Beyonce's production techniques on this album are staunchly, almost machine-like. But Solange worked with... Devontae Hines, Blood Orange. Exactly. And in fact, with Dev Hines, uh, she produced her True EP. True EP. And I think this song looks good with the trouble really echoes this one. You can hear I had that song in my notes. <laughs> you did? It always beat me to it. <laughs> no, I mean like like just the the texture of the drum and bass in that song. Hey little Solange released her album A Seat at the Table two years after this, and Patrick Wimberly of Chairlift participated in that album. And if you listen to a song like Where Do We Go, you also hear notes of No Angel. There's something distinctly machine-like about this production. And it's ironic because she's singing about not being a machine, and yet somehow it sounds like you're in the engine of one of Beyonce's vintage Rolls Royces or the world's sexiest steam engine, and she's serenading you with a homily about her worst nature, her messy, imperfectionistic side, and yet she's delivering it within a rhythmic and musical framework of orgasmic clockwork. <laughs> this woman can't help but ooze precision even as she pleasures the opposite. Oh my god, I love that. There's a point about the 2 minute 19 second mark where it sounds like an, an engine starting and sputtering and releasing smoke or a bullet being released which adds to the machine-like quality of the song. The rhythmic nature of the drums and the bass sounds like wheels gliding over smooth pavement, but this isn't like a sunny drive through the highway. This is like a drive through a city where it's always nighttime. It feels like sex and not hallucinogenic. Mm. 
I adore how her voice sounds on this. That rasp is so visceral to me. It sounds like the dusting on sandpaper. It's a song about dirty talk. No Angel sounds like a pet name that you would give to a lover when they're being naughty. But she starts the song by saying, tell me I'm a problem, which does sound like dirty talk. And I think Bonnie is a top in this relationship. <laughs> Baby, put your arms around me, tell me I'm a problem. No, I'm not the girl you thought you knew and thought you wanted. Underneath the pretty face is something complicated. I can't help but point to an influence. Beyonce is perhaps more explicitly indebted to this male artist than any other male artist, and that's Prince. And he was so known for this seamless, so very sexual falsetto. An obvious choice of a song that might foreshadow the vocal technique she uses on No Angel is his song International Lover or Kiss. But when I hear No Angel, the Prince I hear is so blue from his debut album in 1978. But I also hear one of his lesser known songs, Black Sweat from 2006. My favorite part of this song is where the bass gets really heavy and she's just like right, right around. That's my yeah. favorite part too. Yeah. Absolutely. It's so, so good. And again, it just goes back to the car theme. Exactly. Like this is a song to do donuts in. Beyonce performed this song once for like two seconds at the VMAs. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I know, this is like a really crazy song because it might be the only one besides Start Over that, yeah. <laughs> that we have nothing to go by. Yeah. But the significance of the context in which she did sing it live deserves a moment of fanfare, I think. Definitely. The 2014 VMAs were a big deal for Beyonce. She won the Michael Jackson Vanguard Award. But more importantly, she did something typically bombastic. You know, the release of this album was bombastic enough. But what she did was perform a medley of 12 songs. Now, this was her enjoying her crown. You know, two years later, she'd actually, I think, give her best ever award show performance in history, which was the 2016 VMAs that, were, mm. that was full of fire and brimstone. Yes, and hot sauce. Oh, yeah. This was a point in her career where she was officially anointed the queen of pop. But what she did, the 12-song medley she did, it was highly unusual. In fact, it had never been done at the VMAs. You'd had long performances before. The most notable was Michael Jackson's 1995 performance where, you know, he sang, well, let me correct myself. He performed for 15 minutes. It only spanned five songs. It's also worth noting that while his choreography was stunning, especially during the song Dangerous, he lip-synced the entire performance. The only times he didn't lip-sync was when he thanked the audience for being there. He even lip-synced the ballad You Are Not Alone. Beyonce came out and she sang 12 songs. MTV, welcome to my world. During No Angel, Beyonce is dancing so well to this with Le Twins their motions are actually very auto-vehicular. And she's the driver. <laughs> she controls them with her hands. Totally. You were saying she was a top, Enzo. Yeah. <laughs> her bodysuit during this performance. The jewel-encrusted bodysuit. The Tom Ford orgasm onto her body. <laughs> 
I mean, she looked so good. <laughs> so, so good. That's an iconic outfit. Absolutely. In fact, did I tell you that I have it? She gave it to me. <laughs> Does it fit you? I wore it for my cousin's Indian wedding. <laughs> the whole family was like... <laughs> <laughs> you upstaged the bride. <laughs> <laughs> no Angel follows Ghost and Haunted. And this was a performance where Beyonce really mastered her song mixing. She got better and better at having her discography flow into each other and have an interplay where she kind of graduated to an auteur. But Beyonce was the first album that she presented emphatically as a coherent body of work. And so her performance of this showcased that synergy between the songs. And what I love is that you have, you know, she sings Haunted, and after the word foreplay, you have this wonderful dive into No Angel. And the transition is brilliant, partly also because her fans interpret foreplay as the number foreplay, right? Which is Beyonce playing with the cosmic energy of her mythological queendom. Well, you know, after she finishes this medley of songs, Jay-Z came out... Carrying Blue Ivy. Carrying Blue Ivy to present the award to Beyonce. And what he said to her then was something that had been obvious for a few years now to the mainstream, obvious to me since 2008, which is... the recipient of the Michael Jackson Vanguard Award and the greatest living entertainer, Beyonce. And the fact that she performed this medley in a televised fashion, 12 songs in a row, danced throughout, sang live throughout. We had seen her do it. We who were attending her concerts and watching her DVDs knew she could do it. But her doing this on a national stage while winning the highest honor was kind of this really lovely coronation. And she did it in a very happy way. She had a smile on her face. She'd kind of really accomplished what she wanted to accomplish. Also, anytime Beyonce performs at an award show when she's in the middle of a tour, she goes extra hard. You really don't want to fuck with her then. Definitely. Since that's the only live rendition of No Angel Beyonce's done, I think all we're left to talk about are the ways that she's incorporated No Angel into her concert interludes. The most conspicuous way that No Angel's been used as an interlude took place on a Renaissance world tour. It opens up the segment Opulence. Tempo good, tempo good, if you like, tempo good. It turns into a, a large-scale cyborgian silver spectacle of Beyonce lip-syncing a remixed version of No Angel. And there, there are two interesting things about this, I think. One is that she's remixed No Angel into this unbelievably gay club song. Which is vivified by the visual. So the video has men voguing. You have lines like, I'm giving you tens, 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 tens. <laughs> the other thing that struck me about this opulence interlude was that by having an animation of Beyonce as a robot sing the song, she intensified this paradox of being a robot while being no angel. Machine, but not a machine. 
perfect, but not perfect. Human, but not human. She is an alien superstar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my gosh, the cyborg analysis is making me proud. <laughs> <laughs> All in tribute to you, my yeah. friend. And you know, on that note, Enzo and I both have pieces about the Renaissance World Tour, but Enzo is, is this baroque opulent analysis of the cyborgian theme of renaissance, renaissance congratulations my love and john on the other hand has a lovely piece in the wall street journal about beyonce's athleticism and how that's so important to him as a gay pop fan So the video of No Angel is directed by Lil Internet and Beyonce scouted him because she saw his work on a Diplo music video called Express Yourself and that was set in New Orleans and it was a lot of raw documentary style footage of people around the city in a way that showcased the city's character and Beyonce tapped him to create a video for No Angel and uh, from the very beginning she knew exactly what she wanted. She knew she wanted it to be set in Houston and she gave him basically the treatment for it. He just wanted to capture uh, his method of uh, portraiture. And I think that this music video is an exercise in portraiture. The people in this video are featured in such captivating ways. They all have stories in their eyes. And it's a real marvel to witness because sometimes I watch this video and I think that they overshadow Beyonce. I think that they're the stars of this video. And the reason for that is that they aren't performing. Beyonce is. And what makes it so great is I feel like these are lower class neighborhoods in Houston's fourth ward that we're seeing. And uh, these are households that are struggling with poverty, struggling with, with the nine to five, with this unforgiving economy. And oftentimes when we see that kind of world represented in film, it's through a gaze that isn't so forgiving. It might be snobby or sensationalist. But what's brilliant about this video is that it really elevates the culture of this world into a kind of pageantry. You see these monstrous, alluring cars. They kind of look like they're outfitted like royal carriages. I love that there's even at one point a crew of men with their cars behind them and they're even holding up a poster of one of the cars. Yeah, I um, had to pause that moment because it was so trippy at first. I was like, I wait, what am I looking at? It's like a picture in a picture. Yeah. And the cars function in different ways too. Some of them are memorial sites. I remember at one point the trunk of a car opens to feature like a rest in peace sign to someone who's passed in the community. We see big cars, we see toy cars, we see like grown men in little toy cars. It's an ode to engines and to movement and to creativity. All these people have like really created their own animals out of these cars. In a way that reminds me of Filipino jeepneys. <laughs> the video does feature an array of Houston rappers, including Slim Thug and Bun B, whom Beyonce recorded a remix of her smash hit Check On It with in 2005. And in fact, when she sang that song, she was young. She was just liberated from Destiny's Child. Bun B was a hip hop elder. And now with this video, she's queen and she's saluting those who helped pave her way. Yeah. All that being said, while you find in this a kind of glorious pageantry, Enzo, I find it a little odd. Beyonce grew up in a distinctly middle to upper middle class setting in Houston. Her parents were very successful. Her community was very successful. And if she had showcased the 
black success in Houston that she emerged out of, a father who was an executive who put his attention behind her and turned her into one of the most significant figures of the 21st century, that would have made me feel like she was actually portraying Houston in a more personally authentic way. I don't believe that Beyonce is actually connected to this. So for me, the voyeurism here was less about objectively what was being portrayed and more about the fact that Beyonce was doing the portraying. Yeah, and the conceit of that, I feel, is captured in the fact that Beyonce actually didn't film this in Easton. She filmed it in Australia because she was on tour. And so they found a house in Australia that looked like it could have been in Houston. And I like that you're saying that she was performing or the only one performing this video because she certainly was. But she ended up wearing this really glorious white fur coat. And she's standing in front of this house in Brunswick, which is a suburb of Melbourne, that was kind of run down looking. She looked great. She's actually holding a, a pit bull at one point. Right. And that house ended up becoming a tourist attraction in Melbourne. You know, it was like the one place Beyonce ever spent any time in in Australia. (laughs) So people would would pose outside. And when that house was put on the market, it became known as the house outside which Beyonce posed. Yeah. But you know what? My favorite look of hers in this video is not the white coat, although that is fantastic. It's uh, it's her in the Houston Rockets jersey and nothing else. And she's just lying on a couch looking very relaxed minimal makeup very pretty and he's just in repose i love it for me actually my favorite scene with her is the consummation of this autovehicular groove of the song which finds its imagery in the music video when she's seen during the ride around part in a car with her head out the window and it's worth noting that in, in a way the scene is a foreshadowing or a prelude to her most epic car scene ever just about two years later in formation which is an ode not to Houston, but to New Orleans, where she also hangs out the window, but this time it's her long braids out the car window in a smashingly epic scene. Is it time? (laughs) 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 Oh my God. I love the Mama Tina music. It makes me so happy. It's so, so good. I'm like, Tina's home. Tina's home. I know. I'm like, oh, after like the grueling day, I can yeah, finally I come home to my salon. I know. And Tina's like, what's on your mind, honey? <laughs> okay, cue the music. Welcome, friends, once again to Mama Tina's Hair Salon. Welcome. You know, actually, my father told me that he wants me to re-explain what the hell we're talking about during the salon because he was like, by the third episode, I totally forgot and oh. I we need a refresher. Okay, Mr. Saturday, this is for you. <laughs> <laughs> so Mama Tina's Hair Salon is an ode to the salon that Beyonce's mother ran in Houston, Texas, where she said she met many of the women who inspired the song she wrote. And so now we are going to come up with our quintessential subjects, real or not, historical or not, that we believe this song is geared towards. Take it away, Enzo. Okay, so in Manila, there is a motel chain called Victoria Court. And the logo is of a 1920s flapper woman. And it's a black and white logo, and she's just raising her finger to her lips as if to say shh. I was always fascinated by that woman because she looked so glamorous. She kind of looked like the eyes on the cover of The Great Gatsby. You know, those eyes like floating over the city, which is kind of also how I imagine No Angel to look like if it were a book cover. Mm-hmm. I grew up seeing this logo everywhere, on jeepneys, on billboards. 
everywhere and I had no idea what it was. And I remember asking my parents as a kid, like, mom, dad, what's, what's Victoria Court? And it always like evade the question. Well, I remember one time I asked my dad and he was like, um, what is Victoria Court? And then and my mom just like didn't answer him. So I just like went through most of my childhood not knowing. And then when I got to high school, I found out that it was a love motel and it was a place where people would go to fuck. <laughs> and that's why the woman was like clutching. So to me, no angel is best embodied in this woman. It's, it's sexy, it's a little bit covert, and it's shrouded in mystery. So this is for Victoria, and we're going to post the logo on our Instagram so you can see it. <laughs> nice. My Mama Tina's patient is kind of two-pronged. Beyonce's singing No Angel for the American press, but the person she really has in mind is Rihanna. You know, she's basically showing that Rihanna is not the only good girl gone bad. Rihanna was criticized early on in her career for being too like Beyonce. You know, she started very young, but she emancipated herself from this by leaning into her now signatorial badass swag so effectively that critics started calling Beyonce too vanilla by comparison. This song, is Beyonce's counterfactual thesis statement. And it's embedded in the heart of an album, which itself echoes the statement that Beyonce can get wet and nasty too, but with the electric perfectionistic precision that makes Beyonce Beyonce and not Rihanna. She's telling the press, she's telling Rihanna that underneath this pretty face is something complicated. She comes to the side of trouble and whatever you want. Yeah, baby, I bet. It comes true. It comes true. Well, I guess we should just end by saying happy 10th birthday. Self-titled. Yes. Oh my god, happy 10th birthday. Oh, it's been, it's been a, oh god, I can't believe it's been a decade. Wow. I was a baby when this album came out. I know, you were two years old. <laughs> so it's good to finally record with an adolescent. <laughs> and hopefully one day we'll get more live performances. We'll do an update episode if so. <laughs>